Welcome to the Career Conversations podcast brought to you by Hunter Recruitment Group. I'm your host, Craig McGregor. Today we have an excellent career conversation with Professor Dr. Jody Simpson. She's currently the Assistant Dean of Research and Deputy Head of School for the School of Medicine and Public Health. And in this conversation, we explore her career path and the pathway of an academic, of a researcher. We really explore the how and the why of studying a PhD. It's a fascinating career conversation with a a pioneer of research in asthma and the treatment of various subtypes of asthma. And she has a really great uh, answer to our career conversations time machine if you hang on till the end. So without further ado, enjoy our conversation with Dr. Jodie Simpson. Today's podcast is brought to you by Hunter Recruitment Group. People-centric recruiters, HRG looks to use technology and personal interviewing techniques to ensure the best fit possible for both the candidate and the employer. We operate labour hire and temp services for various sites, conduct permanent recruitment searches and have an innovative program we call temp to perm You can find us on the web www.hrgroup.com.au or search for us on your favourite social site, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. Whether you're an employer looking for a fantastic new team member or you're an individual seeking their next great career move, start a conversation with Hunter Recruitment Group today. So welcome to the Career Conversations podcast, Dr Jodie Simpson. Thanks, Craig. It's great to have you here today. I don't think I've ever met anyone with your background experience. I'm really interested to find out why and how you got to where you are. So why don't we start at the start? Let's so um, be a bit of a non-traditional pathway. Yeah, I love those sorts of things. So so step me through. So were you at at school dreaming of being in research or? No, I don't even know if I knew what research was at high school. I think um, I think I had a relatively sheltered school experience um I didn't know really what was out there and what all the opportunities or the choices might be um but I love science so I knew that at least by about year nine or ten where was school where'd you go I went to Curry High School yep um and so I yeah had this interest in science I guess a curiosity about science but always had a lot of doubt about how hard it would be to follow a career path in science. So why, why, like, you know, everyone goes to school and gravitates towards different subjects. Why was science I think, your interest? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know why. I mean, I, I liked the um, question asking and the curiosity aspect of it. And I think I liked the practical part. It was one of those subjects at school where you got to do things and it wasn't all... Yeah, it wasn't all just writing theory, and theory. So I yeah. guess I liked the part about getting your hands dirty and doing some practical and answering questions. You know, if I add this and this, what will happen? I was like that. I, I didn't like English because it was so subjective. Yeah, I yeah. I didn't like that. I really, I struggled with English for those reasons. Yeah. And I think by the time I was in year 12, I kind of worked out a successful formula for <laughs> how to do okay. Yep. Um, but I didn't have a lot of confidence in kind of my ability to just writes right and give an opinion whereas if you could add this to that so I guess maths I liked as well because it seemed Same. like there was an answer and I could find it out yeah right yeah. or wrong yeah yeah so so you've done uh, found passion for science at school I did wasn't sure about a career path what did you do after I school? um I applied to Newcastle University to do a Bachelor of Science um which I was very fortunate enough to 
be um, invited to take a place. But around the same time, I had seen, um, saw a job in the local paper for trainee pathology technicians at what used to be the Hunter Area Pathology Service. Yeah, okay. And something um, drew me towards applying for that. I think I liked the idea of having a job and studying at the same time. And, and um, for me, probably being um, the first in family to contemplate full-time university, yep. um, this felt a bit more comfortable. So I applied for that and I got that job. And that job involved me going to TAFE to do an associate diploma in pathology techniques. So were you studying at uni at the same time? No, I, no, did, so I deferred. Uni. I didn't take the university option. I went to TAFE. I did that for a year and decided I really wanted to go to uni. Do you um, think it was the study that you enjoyed? Or I liked why? the study, I, but it wasn't I didn't find it challenging enough. Yep. I think that first year was a lot of... I was already learning lots of practical skills through work and I, I wanted more than what I was... I guess, to, I wanted to learn more than what I was through the um, theory side of it. And do you think, looking back now, you got more out of uni because of that year? I think I got more out of uni because of the combination of working and studying together, yep. which I'm not, I wouldn't say is, there's, lot, there's lots of advantages in being a full-time student that I probably never got to enjoy or understand, but... Bar on the hill. Yeah, you know, I had all those things. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I guess I experienced uni in a different way, but that having that combination, I think, of the theory and practical, um, I'd like to think made me a more employable graduate. And I guess... I've talked about that with a number of people. For me, about that was podcast. really important. Yeah, it's, it is. It's oh, that, that you, you hit the nail on the head, employable. Yeah. Um, I truly believe that I talk to people about my experience of doing a, a business degree with HR major and, and then stepping into a recruitment agency. And I still remember... All the different people in my business that I was working with, they were all doing a Cert for in personnel management back then. Yeah. And they'd ask me to help them with an assignment and I'd go, this is vocational, this is unreal what you're doing as part of your learning and then working. I learnt theory, I didn't learn job stuff in, in university and, and I think, yeah, the value of employability of doing, doing it at the same time really undersold. I think there is, and there certainly was then, and it was a while ago, and I think university's changed a lot now, yep. and it has a much bigger focus on employable yeah, graduates. Yeah. Um, and I also think from my family background, you, I, I don't think I ever considered that I would have a career. I wanted a job that I liked. And it so was, what was that? What, what, mum and dad worked in the same job for 20 years plus? Pretty much. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, dad had worked only like in two main places of employment yeah. both for a long time and um, mum had always well she'd worked part-time for most of my older childhood and um, it was certainly our upbringing was about uh, having a job that you liked because you had to go there a lot yeah. but it was really about what that job brought in terms of an income to do the other things you like doing so yeah. I didn't really have that model of um, a career and everything a career could be. Well and it's also it's really interesting that like if you look at research and science mm. um, as a year 12 or year 10 student there's not many there's not knowledge around what career paths there are there I think back now and I often laugh I don't think I knew what engineering was yeah. and I think if I'd known what engineering was maybe that would have been a pathway that might have interested me for the same kind of that applied mm -hmm. aspect of science I think yep. um, and I just I don't know why I don't know why that knowledge didn't wasn't 
available to me. Mm, it is. It's when you when you think about it, even like I reflect on my career. I worked for this niche manufacturing business. We did filtration products, mm-hmm. and no one needs to know they exist. Like yeah. they're all in like the dust collection bags in power stations or um, conveyor belts used in making paper. Yeah. But that plant that I worked for employed 400 plus people yeah. in great jobs. And if you didn't explore, you'd never know. Yeah. So it's interesting, that sort of stuff. I find that fascinating that there's, particularly there's science is, is just, there's a world out there that so most people wouldn't know about. Yeah, I think I think that's true. And, and, and people hopefully... People make great careers out of it. Now with the, the internet and social media and all yep. those things, I think hopefully that brings a lot of that to people who wouldn't normally be able to see what's out there. Yeah, but it also might be a different recruitment process too. Like I, I jokingly, I interviewed um, Laurie McKenna recently from the Jets mm-hmm. and I said to him, mm. haven't seen a job ad on Seek for a striker. You guys recruit mm-hmm. differently yeah, yeah. and science and research might be different as well. I think so and certainly in, in my experience in the Newcastle area, um, our Hunter region, it's... Ten, it's relatively small yep. and um, and so people who got into those areas and, and were reasonably successful would be often word of mouth that yeah. you would pick up. So it's network. Yeah, pick mm. up work and that certainly, I, I applied for that first job but the job after that was somebody knew someone who yep. was looking for someone. Yep. Um, so hey, there's a perfect candidate over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah and it just absolutely. all worked. So. Okay, so you went. So you finished, finished TAFE. Did you did stay you at the pathology place? I, you? I did for a little while longer. Yep. I did another two years there while I was studying uni part-time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably... It, it may be easier now to study university part-time because of online <laughs> learning. <laughs> it was um, It was okay for about two years and then it became impossible because everything was between nine and five. Yep. Um, and I wanted to go... I wanted to keep doing uni and work less than full-time and the pathology service wasn't um, wasn't really open to that I think they wanted they they were looking for a technical officer and I guess I was training to be um, something outside that role and so just became apparent I need to see what I could find part-time and that was just through um, a colleague at at the pathology service who knew someone who said, "Oh, they and they worked in a research and development lab." Um, so I went along there, and they gave me a job three days a week. So did that fit with what you were studying? Was it complementary? Well, yeah, it was, and it gave me a whole different experience in terms of um, the co- different kinds of laboratory work that there is out there. So I'd come from a diagnostic pathology lab, which was very much certainly growing in terms of being um, mechanised. Sample went on, result got spat out, whereas this was a little bit more technical and hands-on. We were developing antigen um, to be sent overseas to make a kit to detect the bug that causes stomach ulcers. Okay. So it was really in- I was, it was interesting, was yep. curious, and had that international link, which I found really fascinating. Um, so I, did, I worked there basically throughout the rest of my degree. Yeah, okay. And so you finished your degree. So it was Bachelor of Science. Bachelor of Science, yep. yeah. And um, and Tell I think me about that stream. Do you major in anything? Yeah, there, you do. Yep. And I I was really um, maybe maybe as many school leavers are just a bit unsure about what to do. What there's a even in science there was a large array of subjects you could choose from, mm. and um, and I was always a bit uh, kind of um, reluctant 
I didn't want to pick anything too hard because I really didn't want to do badly. So <laughs> I was yep. trying to, you know, hedge my bets and get the right combination. But after, by about second year, I think I'd worked out that biology and chemistry were the two areas that I really liked. And I discovered this love for chemistry in particular, um, more physical chemistry. Uh, and I think at the time, there was also some new academics at the university in that area. So that was really... Do so um, you think they influenced? Absolutely yep. influenced me to go down that road. And um, just um, fascinating work in terms of surface chemistry, plastics, how, how things might work, how, you know, the rain might bead on your windscreen and things yeah, like wow. that. And it just, it was, uh, I guess, opened up chemistry um, to me like I'd never really considered it before. Yep. So I majored in chemistry, finished my undergrad training and then decided to do honours. So a year of a research so project for a year. Why honours? I just, I wasn't... I think I'd started to transition from that thinking about I just need a job to pay the bills yep. to I really like this. Yep. I actually think I could devote more time to this. So how did you sustain income and, yeah, and that life was, whilst um, doing honours? Honours was probably my favourite year at uni because I studied full-time for the first time for a year. Yep. Um, I still worked part-time. Um, I worked one day a week, so the company that had employed me three days a week agreed to keep me one day a week for that year. That's good. Um, which was really generous um, of them to do that. And because I'd been a worked full time for so long, at that stage you could still get some allowance or study, like a new start, whatever it's thing. called now. Yep. Um, which I think, yeah. And I lived at home, yeah. Okay. So I, I managed it. Um, through yeah, mum and dad supporting me and those little bits of income that could come in. Yep. Yeah. And so tell me about, like, I don't know much about an honours degree in, yeah. in science. What does, that, what does that mean? At the time when I did that year in chemistry, it was, um, it was two things. It was some coursework, so learning about, um, so lectures and those kind of things. So really extending your learning into specific areas. And then the biggest part of it was a research project where you worked with a supervisor. So I worked with the supervisor that I'd really um, looked up to and admired and had um, really sparked my interest about surface chemistry and got to be part of that research team as well. So that was a group with PhD students and, um, yeah, so... For me, I approached that like a job. I would turn up every day at 8 o'clock and, and yeah, okay. finish at 5 o'clock. And that worked well for me because I'd kind of been used to that yeah. approach. It's not a requirement. People do it differently. So tell um, me, how do you get life. into honours? Do you have to qualify? You do. You, well, at that stage, you had to have a certain um, a, a, an average of a credit across mm -hmm. your undergraduate degree. Um, and I, I... Do you have to come up with your... Like your, um, what you're going to practice? You, you can, but I think at that apply. stage, most students probably would be reliant on their supervisor to yep, say, I've got this project, we could turn it into an honours project, what do you think? So that was kind of how our mind turned out. But it yep. was a really great year, I loved it. I loved being on campus full time and just finally getting a bit of a chance to enjoy that. So what did you transition into after honours? After honours, um, towards the end of honours, I still had this niggling idea that I have to have a job, I have to have a job. Um, because the next step was doing a PhD. And I, at that stage, I wasn't convinced I wanted to commit to a PhD in chemistry, mm -hmm. mostly because I couldn't see the employment avenue. A career path. Okay. Yeah. Um, so when I look back now, I think, 
there would have been lots of opportunities, yep. but I wasn't ready as well, I think, to commit to another three to four years of full-time study. Did you have a yearning to do it, though? Did you want to do it but just couldn't see a career path? Yeah, I think I wanted to do it, and I think um, I think it wouldn't have taken too much to persuade me to do it. But I think my personal circumstances at the time were such that I yep. thought, I've done I this now, go I'll, I'll go and do something different. So there was, a, again, a job advertised in the paper in respiratory medicine at the John Hunter Hospital, and I applied interviewed, yep. got the job. So what was the job? The job was for, they used to, the position used to be called a hospital scientist, but it was, it was looking for someone with um, a degree in science or um, we didn't really have so much biomedical science then um, in Newcastle, but to come in and build, the, build up into the research lab team that was there. So when I started, there was one other person in the lab. So um, she and I together made two and over time so step it built. Through the recruitment process. I don't think I've done much in, in health. medical. In yeah, health. it's interesting. Is it, is it an interview? Do you, well, you tell do me an, about the interview process. I did an interview with the panel. Yeah, okay. Um, so this is a government job too? Yeah, this was state government, yep. um, federal government. Um, but it was funded, I guess, through the respiratory department. Yep. Um, so I did an interview with the panel. I don't remember the application. It can't have been too involved where I think you probably just sent in your yeah, CV in those days. Um, whereas other ones since then have been much more complicated. Yep. And then there was a, an interview panel where they had set questions um, and they had, a, they had a little test to do. Well, that was what I was trying to get to. Um, which was a little lab-based test, yeah. I guess, to try practical. and... Practical. A practical yep. to see if I could back up, yep. show them that I could actually do the lab work. Okay. And was that uh, stressful or was it something? No, it was, no, it was easy. I remember that was easy. And then I made a joke in the interview, which <laughs> I probably wouldn't recommend. <laughs> and then felt everyone was deadpan serious and I was like <laughs> laughing. I thought, okay, this is probably not the right way to go. But, I was, but you got the job. Got the job. Yep. However that happened, I got the job. Well. Yeah. So, and I've been in that group since 1997. Yeah, okay. So that, so that was the start mm. of your employment. Yeah. And so you've, you worked with the same organization uh not the same organization but with in the same um team with with the same people yeah okay um so i was employed by the hospital um until 2005 and then from then i've been employed by the university yeah okay but it was really that role that that's when i chose like i kind of decided to go down this career pathway yeah well i was going to ask so you mentioned in respiratory yeah was it just luck which i didn't know anything about yeah, was it just that was the have a particular passion yeah. or know anything about airways disease really other than what everyone else walking down the street might know yeah um but it was the kind of lab work that i had experience in and i was interested in i've always liked um i guess that medical research link yeah. And I wonder, I often wonder if that was maybe the thing I felt was missing in chemistry. Yeah, okay. Um, is that I've always had this interest in health and... Yeah, okay. And that link to patients and helping people feel better. Um, and I think it was just a function of the team at the time. Like, so I was working for Professor Peter Gibson, um, who was establishing his research group, a really great group of people. We were only really small. There was loads of opportunities and he was really generous and happy to... So has he been like a mentor in your career? Certainly. I, I was a, reading your bio for on a the long, long time. university website. Yeah, yes, for a long, long time and gave me lots of opportunities yep. to, to progress and was who I spoke to about 
I think I might like to do a PhD. Yep. So how long was it after, say, 1997 was when you started? Yeah. That, when did you make the decision to do the PhD? Oh, probably about 2001. Yep. I'd been thinking about it. It's not long. No, it wasn't long. And I'd been thinking about it probably for more than a year yep. um, before then, but I was pretty nervous about what that would mean. I didn't really want to go back to having no money. Hmm. Well, that's what I was going to ask. So, <laughs> yeah. PhD student, did you then exit the business or how did it work? What's the me- mechanism? It's It, it varies for, di- for different candidates. Yep. Um, but what I, um, what I did was I was awarded a scholarship and I maintained part-time employment. Okay. So, so for me, I was from able uh, from the go- federal government. Federal government. Okay. Yeah. So I had an Australian postgraduate award, which basically pays your basic living yep. expenses tax free. So I think it was about sixteen thousand dollars a year back then. Great. It's only about twenty seven now. Yep. So it's um, and like most students, I worked part time. What was fortunate for me was I was able to work part time. Stay in that team. In the team, yep. and I didn't have to go out to other industry to work part time. So I think that also gave me a really big advantage. So step me through the the journey of becoming a doctor, PhD student. Uh, Well, it was an exciting journey. Because of the group that I was in, um, I worked in a small team really closely with other PhD students. um, And there was one, uh, so Peter Gibson at the time had a PhD student, Peter Walk. um, And so I got to be involved in his research studies. And I just, something really clicked for me in terms of this is really interesting. So it, that curiosity, I think, that I always had, but being able to ask questions in a scientifically rigorous way and hopefully have the outcome make an impact into So is it a health. thesis or a body of work that you have to... It's a body of work. Did you have that selected before you went and do... Or did you just say, oh, I want to do more? I Yeah, I just wanted to do more. So yeah. I'd worked with... Uh, I'd worked with Peter Walk and watched him do his PhD and just thought, I want to do wow, that. I want a part of that. I'm yeah. happy to... I really enjoyed working with him, but I thought, I want to do want the to bit he's him. doing. Yeah. Um, and so then there's a, an opportunity had had come along for me to do a PhD, but I was uncertain about the project. And I eventually went and spoke to Peter Gibbs and said, I think I do want to do a PhD. Yeah. Um, and so we spoke about... I think he might have put up two or three ideas on possible areas that I could pick from. And I picked one that I thought was interesting and it really so you choose? went from there. So he, um, he'd he been doing some work with one of the other doctors and I'd been doing some of the lab work on it where he'd been looking at patients with asthma coming in and we started to look at their inflammation. Um, so we do that by collecting some induced sputum, so patients cough up some sputum. Nice. Sounds a bit gross, yep. but it's all part of our day. Um, but what we noticed was when we started looking at those slides and looking at the cells, that everyone, um, not everyone was the same. But the, looking at your research, everyone's well, in, asthma was being treated the same. Everyone's treated the same. Everyone, there was this really well embedded idea that if you had asthma, you had an abundance of a particular type of white blood cell. And if you didn't have that, then you probably didn't have asthma. Was probably something else. And he said, "I think you know that was one of the areas. And I think I'd really like to work on that." Um, it's and it's a big area in Australia. It is, yeah. And it's um, you know there's still so much that we don't understand and don't know. So I feel like it's the you know the gift that keeps on giving because yeah. it's. I think it will be well beyond my career before it all gets 
um, worked what out. About, like, you know, what about globally? Is there is it a big like I know it's a big issue in Australia. Look, they always talk about it with kids in particular. Yeah, asthma is a really like big issue in Australia, and it's a growing. I guess it's hard to give a, an exact figure globally because we don't have a lot of good data. Obviously, we have the best data from the most developed countries. Yeah. And it's in Australia, it's about one in 10 adults and one in six children. And it's similar in um, the UK and North America mm -hmm. and Asia. What we, so we've always had that kind of prevalence data, but until we started to look at the inflammation and the cells in the airways, we didn't understand that everybody was a bit different. So you couldn't just say asthma was this kind of inflammation and we will give you all that treatment. So I think as those studies have come out over the last 10 or 15 years, we now know that probably around half of the adults that have asthma have that type that we thought everyone had. Yep. That means everyone else. Yeah, everyone else is different. Yeah. So if you think in Australia, one in 10, that's about a bit over 2 million people. It's about 1 million people. Yeah, that have a different That point. have a different, a different um, pattern of inflammation. Okay. Um, the PhD, the process again of PhD, mm. so do you have... Does it have to be original? So has anyone yeah. looked at... Has so no be, one's looked at that yeah, before? Yeah, so it has to be a contribution to research that is original, a novel contribution, and you have to add to it. You can't... It's not just yeah. reviewing something. And now... Um, it's changed a bit now, but at the time it was um, published in a thesis yep. that would go out and be reviewed by international experts and they would determine whether you were passed or not. Yeah, OK. Um, so this was... so. Like it's 2001? 2002 I started. 2002? Yeah, we had an agreement so that I would complete that it in three years and yeah. no longer. Um, and I submitted it in 2005. Okay. Um, well, what I was getting to is that's pretty yeah. amazing that that research had never been done before. Yeah, I guess it is. But at the time, the in that late 90s was really when this idea of sputum, being able to use induced sputum was, was growing and okay. becoming more common. Um, what's fascinating about airways disease, if you think about other inflammatory diseases in the body, there's ways to measure the inflammation. Mm -hmm. um, but in your lungs, it's hard oh. to get to. Yep. And so biopsy was probably one of the key ways to look at inflammation and it's really invasive. Yep. Um, you're limited if someone, you know, um, is particularly severe or unwell, might not be suitable. And so um, Peter did um, like a sabbatical or some training in Canada, um, in Hamilton, and was part of the team that developed this idea of inducing sputum and then processing it in a way in the laboratory where we could look at the cells. So is that so in 2002, does that mean you're using like cutting edge technology or I you're, guess you're, at the you're time, the frontier of at the this time, has never been done? Um, in Australia, we were certainly probably one of the few groups in Australia doing that. And, and Peter, having done that training in Canada, um, you know, had an international reputation as an, an expert in that area. And so I think it grew from there. Uh, and so we, he was, he set up the lab, which is what I, the group I joined into, to be able to learn how to process the sputum. And then we started, with my experience, we started measuring proteins in sputum and, and things like that. So we started to develop um, our knowledge and, and broaden our knowledge in what was going on. So when you say samples, how did you, how many people, what sort of numbers are yeah, we talking? Yeah, it, it varies. I mean, over the years, over that 20 odd years, we've collected thousands and thousands of sputum samples. Yep. So um, as a PhD student, mm. so you've got a, 
thesis that you're looking to write. Yep. How do you get those samples? I suppose do you do you then put it's, out an ad to say we're looking at asthma? Can, yeah, there's a variety come. of ways that you can yep. recruit for a study. So first of all, I guess you've got to have an original and um, scientifically and ethically sound research question, mm -hmm. and that has to go through all the approval processes. Um, and a recruitment strategy. So for the patients that we uh, studied, predominantly we recruited through the, the hospital outpatient clinics. Yeah, okay. So um, most people with asthma and COPD probably go to their GP and get managed really well, but if that's not working, then they'll be referred to a respiratory specialist. So we were looking at that group of people who needed extra um, management. So. Uh, and then we also did advertising through the community. So did you have a, a network because of the work that you'd done before when you started with no, the hospital? No, I had no, no, I'd never really worked in this kind of traditional research okay. um, area before, so it was all really new. Um, but the team that I was learning from had been recruiting studies and they had, um, so there was a group of respiratory physicians who had busy clinics. And so for me, there was a lot of, um, enjoyment about learning about the patient problems and um, learning how to talk to patients and and you know how to cold call someone and yeah. say you know you might be interested in research and yeah. getting so, used is, to that which I really like I'm a bit of a chatter I guess so I like that I liked that connection but that's even but people listening and myself like I'm picturing a scientist doing a science PhD yeah in a lab and that beakers, test yeah. tubes, do, yeah. doing the doing. Yeah. But thirty percent maybe is actually on the phone, well, for recruiting, me, getting people in to be part of the study. Yeah, it's it, it's, it's it does a holistic depend process. on the different kind of research you do, and I think that's what really appealed to me about this team in the respiratory yep. group is the opportunity to not. I certainly spent time in the lab, mm. but I got to talk to patients. I got to learn how to do lung function testing. Um, learn how to. Um, ask questions about their symptoms and, and things like that. And I think for me that made it a lot more meaningful and important. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. So step me through the, so the writing the thesis part. Writing the thesis, that's the worst part yeah. for me. I'm not a natural writer. Yep. Um, I, t I think my writing skills have improved just because they had to in time. Um, so for me, the parts I loved were the talking to the patients, collecting the data. I loved doing the analysis. Yep. The bit I hated you have to, though, was talk like the discussion part where you would yep. bring it all together. Did you terrible. have to like? Did you like have a journal or a diary from the start so that you Absolutely. made that easier at the back end when you were writing the thesis? Absolutely. So because there was a fairly big laboratory component um, in those in the olden days, you had a laboratory workbook which you would write every experiment yep. in, and you know you couldn't have liquid paper at all it was like <laughs> this scientific record and then the same thing for the participants that we studied when we recorded information about their disease they would be um, very carefully um, kept records and they were all double checked and yep. yeah so that's and that's all part of the learning I guess about that rigorous data so because you want to have confidence when you go and publish the data and present the data that it's accurate and correct and for me that was really important because um, the research area I was part of was a lot of physicians, a lot of doctors, and I came from a science background. Yeah, not a so doctor. I needed to, I felt I needed to have as much credibility as I could yep. to say, I know this person has asthma because yeah, okay. um, we've done this, you know, we've made this rigorous assessment. Yep. 
And so then you've written, how long was the thesis? Gosh, I don't know. It's about that thick. <laughs> does it get published? Where does it so end up? It's, I think it's, um, it's in the university library, mm-hmm. but for me, each of the chapters have been published in, um, in academic literature as well. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so, so that's, um, that's quite a, it's quite a treacherous process, I think, as a student, but when I look back, I think it's quite fulfilling and it's nice that that's been published and then you can see the impact of that work over time. Do you know, you might not know the answer to this, but do you know the numbers of how many PhD, PhD students start but mm. don't finish? Like you've made question. it to the end line, is it 50%? Oh, is it no, I think... I don't know exactly, yeah. but my, certainly my experience from um, working for the university is, is the majority finish. The majority finish, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. I suppose, because I'm thinking back to my first day of uni when they said to you, look to your left, look to your right, only one of you will be there at the end, so yeah. it's a two-thirds dropout. Yeah. I suppose a PhD student's gone through that process, But by the time you've process, gotten to that they? process, and there, there would be a dropout rate, but there's a lot invested yeah. by both the student and the supervisors. Yeah. Um, so I think there are, there are some people who start and decide it's not for them and that's probably best to work that out as early as possible. Yep. <laughs> and so you've got to uh, attend a graduation ceremony or two? Yes, I've been to lots of graduations, yep. which is great. And now I, I really enjoy going to graduations now. Um, and I've early last year... Yeah, last year I got to attend the graduation of my first PhD student who graduated. Ah. So that was a really special ceremony for me. Yeah, well, I was going to ask, yeah. what's it like to be known as doctor? Ah, uh, it was. It's probably normal and boring now. <laughs> it was cool back then. <laughs> it was exciting to start with. Yeah, yep. yeah, it was very exciting to start with. Yeah. And um, yeah, and that distinction between what happens a lot is what kind of doctor are you? So, mm. no, I'm not a kind that can <laughs> offer you any medical advice. Yep. <laughs> so, tell me that, that process then. So, now so now you're a, a supervisor. Mm, yeah, so now I supervise PhD students. Yeah. Yeah, so how that happens is, to begin with, you're usually part of a supervisory team where you're not the primary supervisor. So, I, was, I supervised other students as part of a team and then... Um, I became a primary supervisor and so my first student graduated last year which was really something that was really special to me um, and a great experience. Was it a graduation on what you'd been working on in yours or was it a totally different field? uh, Not completely different but quite a bit different to what I did in my PhD but I guess um, taking that further so I've continued to work in that area, Mm. um, stayed working in that area. Lots of people don't, there are lots of people... Um, go to a different lab. It's quite. Uh, it's becoming less common, but it, at the time when I finished, it was very much frowned upon to stay in the same group. Oh wow! Because um, there was an expectation that you should broaden your experience and go somewhere else. And I understood that, but I guess for the, all those reasons that I went back to, I have to get a job. I have to get a job. Hmm. Um, a bit of a homebody, I think. So I stuck around. Um, so what was the time frame between you graduating, getting your PhD, mm. to becoming a supervisor? Was it oh, four gosh. years, two years? Well, a long time. So I graduated in 2005. Yep. My first student, my first primary supervision student, so the one that I was responsible for, was 2018. Okay. And so how do you get recruited into that? Uh, that's an, an expectation. No, it's an, an expectation as okay. an academic. So from... So I guess if I cut back to when I finished my PhD, I then spent about 10 years as an externally funded, what we call research fellow. So yeah. I um, was 
fortunate and successful in getting uh, income to pay for my salary for about nine years in the same so time. So was that through a government, so federal? Two different organisations. So one of them was through um, a Centre for Research Excellence um, through the National Health and Medical Research Council and the other one was there's an Australian Respiratory Council in Sydney which offered a four-year fellowship which I was successful in um, being awarded. Yep. And during that time, I got married and had two children as well. So I squeezed a lot oh, into those nine years. Yeah. Learned a lot about the juggle. And then following that in 2015, I became a kind of university academic. Okay. But along that time, I'd been supervising PhD students as a co-supervisor. So I was part of a team. So pretty yep. much from when I finished my PhD, I was um, learning about supervision and doing that. But I didn't have... Um, a primary student that I was primarily responsible for until about 2014 when I, my kids were yeah. pretty much at school and, and you could dedicate some I felt time like to I could leave home. Children, your next child. <laughs> yeah, and that's, well, for me that's like, how it is. It's just, yeah, yeah they're like my babies. Yeah. yeah. So t step me through that. You mentioned the fellowship and so mm. there's funding available. Yeah, so when you finish your PhD, there's a few different avenues. Yep. Um, you can go down, you can obviously um, head out to industry um, but that pathway for me wasn't very clear. You can um, get a job with the university and have a career in academia. Um, and then the other avenue which I chose to stay on as long as possible was to be a research fellow. And that meant I devoted all of my working hours to research. Okay. And that's um, a really wonderful position to be in, um, but an increasingly difficult funding resource to try and well, that's what I wanted to get. try and get into because I, I yeah. was again reading your bio and there was a 2.9 million dollar bigger study oh, that you guys did yeah that yeah that was a that was a grant for grant, a project okay. yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, well maybe we'll talk about that one because what I, the breakdown for me which I, I find interesting is you know if someone goes and gets a job they get a salary yeah. Or if someone becomes a contractor, so they might go, that project's worth $100,000. I can acquire the um, the inputs for that at 50 grand, so I'm going to earn 50 grand. Yeah. Really grey for, I'm thinking, it is how really do you guys, grey. do you have to like then go and contribute to costs of the research or is it purely yeah. just wages so that are generated? How does it work? Most of the fellowships available, um, and they're just changing... The federal government's just changed their health and medical research ones just this year, but most of them that are available are for salary only. Okay. Most of them don't cover yep. the full cost of salary, which I don't understand why. It's not like the federal government doesn't know what the university salary rates are. Okay. So there's a gap. So it's not enticing for people to go and do it? Uh, it, it it may not be. Mm. I think what is enticing about doing it is being able to devote 100% yep. of your time to research. Yep. Um, and are they like two year, four year, five year? They vary contracts? between one and four or five years, yep. just depending on who's offering what? them, what they're looking for. Yep. Um, so I had a three year that got extended to five, and then I had a four year. Um, so I was very, I think, really fortunate. Yep at a time where I was working part-time and reduced hours because I had the girls and so I didn't have a salary gap and I didn't have to go and ask anyone to yep. sort that out for me. Yep. Um, which is another difficult conversation that particularly, I guess, is um, can be inhibitory for women. Yeah, absolutely. Do you yeah. think your market or your industry, um, 
like it, that is impacted by that? Like, is, do you see many people leak out of the oh, industry? Absolutely. Yeah. And there's this, um, there's the whole idea that being research only and having that externally funded salary is fantastic, but the, the fact that then there's sometimes a cost of almost half again that has to be contributed and then that pressure of, um, excuse me, of who pays that and yeah. what do you get in return for that. Mm, yep. Yeah, I think that takes away a little bit from, um, I guess, what should be a really prestigious mm. place to be where, you know, you've been chosen to and worked hard. devote your time to research output. Yeah. And making a difference to people's lives. Yeah. Tell me about like HRMI, those yeah. sorts of places. So yeah. Do you partner with those? Or yeah, so HMRI um, certainly came together, it's their 20th anniversary yep. um, this year, but it was really a partnership between the health district and the university to kind of formalise, I guess, a lot of what was already happening and bring that together. And by formalising that, that opened up opportunities for state government support and things like that. And then we finally got our building in 2012. We finally moved in, it's beautiful. <laughs> finally got somewhere to be. So we had gone, when I started in respiratory, we kind of worked in other people's labs. We had a bench here and a bench there, and then yeah, okay. we got to move into some space in the John Hunter Hospital, which was just ours. That made a big difference. Our group grew a lot in that time because we had space and we had proper laboratories, and then when we moved so when to the building. Group, how many? Well, I think now, um, I think there's over 50 in the big art team now. So um, we have kind of different focus areas of research, but mo almost each of those is led by one of Peter's former PhD students. Yeah, good. Um, so he's been a really wonderful mentor in terms of building capacity. Um, so Peter Walk, who's the student I had admired, went overseas and did a postdoc, comes back now. He leads a really interesting program on viruses and airways disease. And Lisa Wood um, is looking at nutrition and airways disease. And so that's, and each of those people then build a team. And so there's yeah. this group of six or eight teams then within the larger group. So step me through your career. You've, you've, you've gotten to the point now where you're, you're working in your space. Yeah. Um, what's, what are you looking back at it now? What do you think has been the, the best part of your career? Oh, gosh, that's a tough question. Yep. Each new part, I think, it's changed a lot um, and I've enjoyed each part of it. So I really enjoyed my time being a research fellow and those years of just eating... Dedicated. Um, sleeping, breathing research and mm -hmm. thinking about that. But I've also recently, for the last few years, I've been um, had a more traditional academic position, which I also really enjoy. And I've had the opportunity to do some more teaching and interact with undergraduate students, which I also really like. So for me, it's been about that, you know, opportunities to try something new, still keep doing my research, but getting to some of those other roles that I actually equally enjoy. And I think that's helped bring some balance because... Um, when research is going well, it's fantastic, but there's a lot of um, a lot of rejection, a lot of failure yeah. um, that goes along the way, which I think you do get better at. But it's nice to have a balance, I think. And yep. yeah, what's next? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> I've just started a role this year with the Faculty of Health and Medicine. It's just a, a day and a half a week where I have a role. Um, 
I guess, trying to build research capacity within the faculty, within the university. So that's more of a, a leadership role, which I'm quite enjoying, getting to work with not only the research fellows, but all of the academics in the faculty and thinking about ways um, to grow research, industry connections, those kind of things. So there's a real push from you, the government about this? we need to get, we need to stop looking yeah. in our own little bubble and get out there. It's not, I think it's a really good question. I don't know how we're and doing it. Is it a day and a half a week? Or is it nah, it's days? probably not a day and a half a week, okay. but we, we, you know, that's university budget and life. Yeah, um, so it should be more. Well, it could be more. Yep. could easily be more. Yeah. Um, but I have this, I guess what works for me is that I, so the university has five faculties. One is health and medicine, and within that there's four schools, but I have quite a... Um, uh, a leadership role in the School of Medicine and Public Health. So those kind of things go a bit hand in hand so you can kind of divide your time somehow yep. without carving off that kind of 10 hours for this job and 10 hours for that job. And I think that's what I like about academia is the flexibility. So I might be doing, thinking about it at so you're not just 3 o'clock in the morning, yeah. but then if I need to leave and pick the girls up for school, they'll have that flexibility. Yep. What about, so, the university itself, I'm guessing, and I'm only guessing, mm. is it a political beast? Like you mentioned, there's multiple faculties, you're all... Yeah, it is. ...argy-bargy trying to get the same sort of funding. Yeah. You've got a network. Absolutely, and I think that's part of what I enjoy learning about now. Yeah. And, and I guess the new opportunities I hadn't lab. thought about. I, d I hardly ever go into the lab anymore. Yep. Um, and someone said to me the other day, you miss it, and I think, yeah, I do. Mm. But I really do enjoy um, this other side of academia as well, where I get to go and talk to people and think about how, how can we engage with industry? How can we set that up? How can we make people feel comfortable? And how do we find out what industry wants from academics? What valuing, I think what academics don't do very well is value what their mm. skill set are. Mm. Um, so that's part of the challenge for this year, which is, um, yeah, something I'm looking forward to. And it, the political things do change politically, obviously. Some faculties are bigger than others. Um, some are more research intensive than others. Some, when you come from me, like when you come from that traditional science background, it's, I think when I started off, I was very narrow-minded in my thinking about what research could be. And then I've come to learn, you know, it's the breadth and um, depth of research is just endless and fascinating. And research in education is really interesting and approached in a completely different way. Um, perhaps, you know, in law and other faculties, so. Yeah. Tell me about the future of your industry. Yeah. Are, are you fearful of the, um, the changing workforce and changing technology and will that yeah, drive change in I think that's a good question. I think space? it's changing and I think for PhD students it's changing and what we need to do is work harder, learn more about how, what PhD students' future opportunities will be. So the idea that you would do a PhD and then you could become an academic, I think, are really limited and yeah, okay. not going to, you know. We've got in our school, the School of Medicine and Public Health, we have over 200 PhD students. Wow. There's not going to be 200 academic jobs in health and medicine in the country. Mm. Um, so that we need to think outside the box and find other avenues. And I think that will be, I think that's what will change and involve and therefore you know, the university will change and evolve with that. Okay, cool. I hope. All right, so we've got a time machine in our podcast. Okay. yes. So we're going to rewind the clock to 20-year-old Jody. Yep. If you, given what you know now, 
what advice would you give her today? I really wish I, was, I really wish I could help her have more self-confidence and belief and and not to let that inhibit having a go at some things. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because I think I think I might have I might have attacked I think I sort of ended up in this pathway, but I yep. might have approached it a bit differently. Yeah, good. Yeah. Very good. All right, well, yeah. we really enjoyed the chat. And Thanks. Thank you so much. I think you've opened our eyes to academia mm. and PhD students. I hope I painted it in a good light because it was a very worthwhile career. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and hopefully you inspire someone else to follow your path. Thank you. Thanks, Dr Jody. Thanks a lot. A truly big thank you to our guest today, Dr Jody Simpson, and also to Hunter Recruitment Group resourcer and recruiter, Lainey Jordan, for making the introduction and making today's conversation possible. If you'd like to learn more about Jody, we'll have a link on our website for her LinkedIn page. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please, there's a back catalogue uh, to go and listen to. And if you really enjoyed it, make sure you go and rate us on iTunes in the podcast section as this gets more people exposed to our Career Conversations podcast. Until next time, thanks to Hunter Recruitment Group, I'm Craig McGregor.